0: Have you ever thought about the influence that other Christians can have on you? How a more m- mature Christian in their example with how they live their life can provide others with an example of how they should then live their life. Maybe how another Christian and how they act and speak can actually bring others joy. How another Christian can make an impact on others by just obeying the Bible on a daily basis. Maybe I'd ask you, have you ever thought about that for yourself, how you influence other Christians? Just think about that for yourself. I'll just give you a moment to kind of pause and think. Think about your influence on other Christians. What is your influence? Is it maybe a bad influence? Is it a good influence? Can people look at your life, see you following God and his word, and then follow God and his word themselves? How is it your influence, or how do you influence other Christians? Today in our 10th section of Psalm 119, we find something new is brought up, kind of a new topic, something that the psalmist hasn't dealt with yet, and that is the influence other believers can have on each other and how they relate to God's Word In hardship. So that's going to be our theme for our passage of Psalm 119 this morning. The influence other believers can have on each other in how they relate to the Word of God in hardship. Again, the influence other believers can have on each other in how they relate to the Word of God in hardship. Now, before we look directly at our section of Psalm 119 this morning, I do that the psalmist in Psalm 119 has actually already spoken about other believers. Or we're going to see he talks about them as those who fear God. He's already talked about those who seek to follow the word of God in his relationship to them. So hopefully you're in Psalm 119 already. Just flip a few sections back with me to verse 63. Psalm 119, verse 63. He's already dealt with other believers. He's already talked about those who fear God. And I think it leads nicely into our section of Psalm 119 this morning. Psalm 119, verse 63 says, I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. I am a a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. So in that eighth section of Psalm 119, where verse 63 is found, The psalmist had been discussing his relationship with God and he kind of strayed off that topic to talk about, just briefly, his relationship with others and specifically his relationship with other people who obeyed the word of God. And we see he says simply that he is a companion to them. He's a companion to them, which means that he seeks to be with them. He seeks to keep the company of other believers. He seeks to be together together with other believers, others who fear God and keep his commandments. The psalmist has a relationship with other believers, and he makes it a priority to be with them. That's what we saw in verse 63. And I begin reviewing this one verse this morning before we ever start our passage, because this is where it all begins. I talked about our influence. That's what our section is going to come down to. The theme of it is talking about our influence, and we see this is where it all begins, that we meet with each other. If we are not with each other, if we are not companions to one another, if we are not together with other believers, we can influence them. So I ask you this morning, is being with other believers a normal part of your life? Do you seek to gather with other believers? Do you spend time with and get to know and enjoy the company of other Christians? They don't necessarily have to be from our church, but I would say, at our church with those believers who go to our church is probably the best way to live out this verse. Coming to the different services, maybe coming a little early or staying a little after to talk with one another, to chat, to catch up, to get to know other Christians. But it's also being involved in the church. Serving in various ways is also how you can live out this verse, verse 63. And I'd even say it goes even informally. Don't necessarily have to be here, but it could be going to one another's houses, maybe for a meal, for a game night, just for a hangout. But I I want you to think about it and think about is this a big part of your life? Is this something you make a priority to be with other believers, to be with others who desire to follow the Word of God? And I begin with that, as I said, because that needs to take place if we are going to do what the psalmist portrays in this section of Psalm 119 this morning. If you don't do this, if you don't keep company with other Christians, you can't be an influence to them. So we go to our 10th section, so you can turn back to verse 73. And we're in our 10th section of Psalm 119. The passage is Psalm 119, verses 73 through 80. I'm going to do something a little risky this morning. I'm going to deal with this section of Psalm 119 a little differently than I have in the past. Usually I work through it pretty much verse by verse, just uh, in order. As I studied this passage, um, it made sense to me, and I, I think hopefully it will make sense to you um, if we kind of jump around a little bit in this section and kind of more so follow the big themes that we see in this section. And you'll you'll see in a moment, as I go through our outline, what I mean. But we're not going to necessarily go verse by verse through it, but we're going to kind of go to the different verses that fall into some different themes that this section uh, has, um, ultimately leading us to the main point of this section at the very end. But to keep things simple, our outline, if you take notes or just... To help you as we start, our outline can be boiled down to three points. We can call them the three big themes of this section. The first we'll look at is the psalmist in suffering, yet again. The second is the psalmist relating to the word of God in his mind and his heart. And then thirdly and lastly, we have the psalmist's influence. So we've got the psalmist in suffering, yet again. The psalmist relating to the word of God in his mind and heart. And then thirdly and lastly, we'll look at, and I think everything kind of... Um, comes to this point, this is our main point, the psalmist's influence. So we'll start with the first, the psalmist in suffering, yet again. And I say yet again because the setting of this, the setting or the situation of this section is suffering. And this setting of suffering, if you've been with me as I've preached through this section of scripture, Psalm 119, I would say three quarters of the sections that we've looked at or more, have talked about suffering, or the psalmist, the writer of this section, or of Psalm 119 is going through suffering. So we see yet again, he's going through suffering. Which should tell us something about life, that the fact we suffer is not unique. Though the specific ways we suffer and exactly what goes on and happens to us is unique, ultimately we shouldn't be surprised when suffering comes knocking at our door. The psalmist shows that very clearly. But though we've seen it before in these sections, we do at least get one thing that is new, and that is the psalmist speaks of the source of his suffering, or in one sense, where his suffering comes from. Look with me at verse 75. Again, I said we're not going to necessarily go right in order, so jump with me to verse 75, and we see this about the psalmist's suffering as we start. Verse 75 says, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous. And then it says, in that in faithfulness, you have afflicted me. That in faithfulness, you, God, have afflicted me. So the section right before this one spoke of suffering, and it specifically balanced the fact that God is good and his word is good, though suffering continues. And even further, the psalmist spoke of the good coming from his suffering in that he was led to obey God's word because of his suffering. But the psalmist seems to be pointing to God as the source of his suffering. He says, you have afflicted me. He's praying to God and he says, you have afflicted me. But if you look over at verse 75 again, I think you'd agree with me. It doesn't seem to be in a blaming way. It doesn't seem to be in an upset or distraught way. He doesn't say, you've caused this. It is your fault. But he says, in faithfulness is a good thing. You have afflicted me. So we might ask, what is the psalmist saying? What should we take from this? Well, for one, this could be used, this verse, this phrase could be used to say that God's evil, that God sins. But again, I think we need to balance this with the rest of scripture, but even we could go, if you look with me at verse 68 of the section before, the psalmist said, you are good and do good. So even here in this verse, as I already said, makes it pretty clear that this is, he's almost talking about this in a positive way, that he's not accusing God of sin or evil. That's not the idea here. God is somehow at work in the suffering and affliction that the psalmist is experiencing. He's using it within the psalmist's life as the idea here. Okay, I think of the story of Joseph. I think the Joseph story is pretty familiar even to the children here. Genesis 45. You don't have to turn there. I just want to read a few verses. But think of the Joseph story. And Joseph is speaking to his brothers about the evil, the, the suffering they've caused to him. And in verse 5 of chapter 45, he says, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. And then in verses 7 and 8 of the same chapter in the Joseph story, Joseph says, And God sent me before you. To preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Chapter 50 of the same story in the Joseph story. Verse 20, Joseph says something similar. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. to Bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So we see the same type of thing. Talking about suffering. God's involved in the Joseph story. Think of Job, verse 21 of chapter 1. Job says after the first round of suffering, he says, The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Go to Acts, chapter 2, verse 23. Peter speaks of God's part in Jesus' suffering as he went to the cross. He says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So it's all over the place. Okay? It's not just here in verse 75 of Psalm 119. We see all over the place in the scriptures that God is said to be a part of. He's said to be the source. He's said to be at work in suffering. How exactly this takes place, even down to the most minute detail, We can't necessarily say, and we're not told in the scriptures, how God keeps himself separate from sin and evil, we're not told. But we do see here that God is separate from it. He is good, as Psalm 119.68 said. He's at work in the psalmist's suffering and even in control of it, so much so that the psalmist says, you have afflicted me. We're told when the psalmist says, or we're told a lot when the psalmist says, in faithfulness you've afflicted me. You look again at verse 75, the second half says, In faithfulness you have afflicted me. So God has done this out of his faithfulness, meaning he's done this out of his commitment to the psalmist. Out of his relationship with the psalmist, he has done this and is working for him and for his benefit. He has brought this suffering upon the psalmist. Even in the previous section, which I've already alluded to, we see how this suffering has been for the psalmist's benefit. If you look with me at 67, Psalm 119, verse 67 says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. And then it says, out of his suffering, but now I keep your word. Verse 71 of Psalm 119 says, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. So we see then how God can take our suffering And he brings change, he brings growth in us. How God can bring hardship on our lives and coming out on the other end is a more committedness to the word of God. So the psalmist speaks of being afflicted and God's part in it. So application for us. I think ultimately this verse should bring us comfort. It should bring us comfort in our times of suffering. In suffering, in times of hardship, difficulty, maybe when you're facing ridicule, you're facing mistreatment, you're struggling in some way, this should bring us comfort to know that God is at work, that God is being faithful, that this suffering, whatever it is, falls within God's sovereignty, his control, that he actually uses it for the good, that ultimately this should bring us comfort in our distress. But as we move on to this first point, under this first big theme, as I called it, of suffering in this section, we see the psalmist also asks for several things in his suffering. The first is that he asks God to console him. If you look with me at verse 76, Psalm 119, 76, we get the psalmist's first request in his suffering. He says, let your steadfast love comfort me. So the psalmist isn't necessarily asking for relief here. Okay, that's not the idea behind this word comfort. He's not asking for relief or even ease, but he's asking God to soothe him, to assure him, to cheer him as he continues to endure this hardship. That's the idea behind this word comfort. The second thing he asks for is that he would be shown kindness, specifically that he be restored or revived. If you look with me at verse 77, Psalm 119.77, the first half says, Let your mercy come to me that I may live. The fact that the psalmist asks to live, which speaks of being restored, that word live means restored, revived, recovered, it shows us a lot about what the psalmist is going through. Even the fact he asks to be comfort shows that he was pretty distraught. He was torn down. He was pretty upset. He was sad. He was distressed and whatever was taking place. He was, he was down in the dumps. And he asks God to show his kindness and his favor to him to restore him to what he once was. That's the idea when he says that I may live. He wants to come back to his normal state of mind. He wants to be happy again. He wants to find joy in life. So even these requests present a picture of what the psalmist was experiencing, and it helps us to ultimately relate to the psalmist. It helps us connect with this guy who's writing here. The third thing he asks for in his suffering is, I'd say, a toughie. It's kind of a tough thing to understand what the psalmist is asking for, at least at first it seems like it. We see he asks that God would bring shame on the ones causing his suffering. Look with me at verse 78. Psalm 119, verse 78 says, let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. So first off, before we really deal with the request here, we see that the psalmist speaks of an instance or maybe an ongoing hardship of someone lying about him. As he says, let the insolent be put to shame. And then he says, because they have wronged me with falsehood. As we've already showed, this section connects back to the, the section right before it in Psalm 119. If you look with me at verses 69 and 70, we see the same situation, the same type of suffering going on. Verse 69 of Psalm 119 says, The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. So he had spoke about someone, he said, smearing, which means covering or plastering. It gives us kind of a word picture there. That someone is covering him and his life with lies. They were going about and saying things that he didn't do, he didn't say. and It was probably tearing apart his reputation. It was destroying his relationships. It was probably causing havoc in his life. And here in verse 78 of our passage, it mentions the insolent once again as he did in verse 69, and then it speaks of these lies or this falsehood. That is the suffering he's experiencing. If you've ever had this happen to you, you know how frustrating it is. You even know how detrimental it is to your reputation, to your relationships. That's what the psalmist is going through. So now as we look at verse 78, second we'll consider actually this request. He asks, let the insolent be put to shame. I don't know about you, but this doesn't seem right, okay? This seems like vengeance. This seems like retaliation. The psalmist has already spoken both in the previous section, but in other sections, he says he suffers, but he continues to obey God's word. This doesn't seem like obeying God's word. So we might ask, is the psalmist slipping up? Is he sinning in his prayer? Well, for for one, it should stand out that the psalmist is asking God, to bring punishment on his persecutors, as opposed to him. Oftentimes, someone does something to us, we want to do something back. Well, he at least doesn't do this, this here. He, he asks God to put them to shame. But then, second, as we think about what this, what this means, that he, he requests, let the insolent be put to shame, We could say that the psalmist, or maybe it's a valid option, that the psalmist's request isn't negative, it's not sinful, but the fact is that if the persecutors are lying about him and possibly doing this because of his relationship with God, the psalmist here is seeking to defend and guard God's honor. Okay, so that's, that's quite, or that's a possibility here, but then I'd say maybe the, the option I like the most and I think could certainly apply here, is that the psalmist, by asking that they would be put to shame, could certainly mean that God would humble them, that God would, be, would cause them to feel guilty for what they've done, ultimately leading them to repent, to turn to God and to turn to following him. So his prayer doesn't need to be looked at as negative or sinful, but can certainly be both asking for them to be changed, but also guarding the honor of God. So what we see from this first point here is that these select verses, looking at the setting, looking at the suffering of the psalmist, he's being lied about, rumors are spreading about him, his name and his reputation are being torn down. He sees this as God's faithfulness to him. And he also looks to God and relies on on him through it. So I'd like to pause just for a moment after this first point and think about application and ask you a few questions to consider. The first is, how do you view your suffering? Do you see God as behind it? That God is at work in it for your good? Or do you see it as the worst possible thing to happen to you, that absolutely no good could come from it? You do not think about God or what he's doing as you experience hardship in your life. But then second, I'll ask you, do you ask God for comfort? Do you ask him to restore you when you're beat down, depressed, hurt, upset? Do you look to God in those times? We certainly see the psalmist does. And then thirdly, I'd ask us as we think about this suffering, what do you pray about, the one causing you this suffering? What do you pray about, the one who's causing the suffering? The psalmist, yet again, in Psalm 119, he's real, he's transparent, and he lets us have a glimpse into his life and his suffering. So we move on to our next point, and we see how the psalmist relates to the Word of God in his suffering, and then we're going to see what all this amounts to in our third and our final point. So we see next how the psalmist relates to the Word of God in his mind and in his heart. In Psalm 119, we see how the psalmist relates to the Word of over and over again. That's the main subject of Psalm 119. We see obeying, speaking, trusting, hoping, learning, understanding, delighting, meditating, memorizing, reading, many, many ways that the psalmist handles and interacts with the Word of God. And here I want to point out to us that the ways that are listed in this section deal primarily with how he relates and uses the Word of God in his mind, and in his heart. We could say how he uses it inwardly. It isn't necessarily seen. It wouldn't necessarily be visible in the moment, but it certainly can be impactful, and it can be evident as he lives out his life and as he continues to do it, as we'll see in, this, in the last and third point. But let's look at these ways he deals with the word of God in this section. First, he has a desire to comprehend God's word. If you look with me at the very first verse, verse 73. Psalm 119.73 says, Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. So we see here how the psalmist wants to grasp, he wants to understand and comprehend the scriptures so that he might learn how to live his life. And we see how he connects it to God As the creator of all things, he says, if you look again at verse 73, your hands have made me and fashioned me. God has made him, and he's the one he should rely on so that his mind can grasp the truths of the scriptures. God is the one who's made his mind, so it it is only him who can bring understanding, is what this verse is talking about. He's relying on God as the creator, as his maker, and he's saying, God, help my mind understand. Second, as we look at how the psalmist relates to the word of God in his mind and heart, we see he waits for God's word to be fulfilled. If you look with me at verse 74, Psalm one nineteen seventy-four 74 says, those who fear you shall see me and rejoice. And then it says, because I have hoped in your word. He waits. That's what, that's what is meant by this word, hoped. He waits He has confidence, he trusts that what God has said he would do, he will really do. Third, he has confidence that God's word is correct. If you look at verse 75, Psalm 119.75 says, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous. He believes that the word of God is right, it is correct, that what God says is best is upright and good. Fourth, as we see how he relates to God's word with his mind and heart, he has a desire for God's word. Verse 77 it says, Let your mercy come to me that I may live. And then it says, in the second half, For your law is my delight. The word delight speaks of a desire. He wants God's word, it's something he values, something he likes, something he gets pleasure from. Fifth, he thinks on God's word. Verse 78. Psalm 119 verse 78 says, Let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. And then the part we're looking at says, As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Meditate speaks of reflecting. It speaks of considering. He will ponder and think about its meaning and the application in his mind. And then the sixth way that the psalmist speaks of how he relates to the word with his mind and heart is that he prays that he would not have sin in his heart. Look at the very last verse, Psalm 119, verse 80. May my heart be blameless in your statutes, that I may not be put to shame. This is ultimately how the psalmist closes this section. By praying his heart would be blameless, not only in action, so not only in what he does, not only in what he says, but he prays that there wouldn't be sinful things in his heart. That he wouldn't sin in his mind, in his heart. That he would have no sin within him is his prayer. That's how he closes. So application as we think about the word in this second point. These ways of relating to the word of God aren't flashy. They aren't immediately obvious. You can't see someone meditating on God's word. It's not immediately immediately visible when someone delights in the word of God. But this is ultimately what leads to obedience, to actually and genuinely living out the word of God. We should be challenged when it comes to our suffering, how we're handling it, how we relate to the Bible. Do we too do some of the things that the psalmist does? As you deal with people lying about you, so if you're dealing with that right now, Do you fill your mind with the scriptures and meditate on them? As verse 78 said, let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, so he says, as this is going on, I will meditate on your precepts. I'll ask you as you are beat down, as you're feeling distressed, maybe depressed, Do you delight in the word of God? As verse 77 said, let your mercy come to me that I may live for your law is my delight. So we should be challenged here to consider what is going on in your mind and heart when you're experiencing suffering. Are you just completely destroyed? Are you beaten down to the point that you are incapable of doing anything? I would ask, are you in the word, thinking on it, reading it, taking joy and pleasure from it. we might not feel like it in those moments, in those times, but we see that is the example of the psalmist. It's what he gives us, and it's what we should follow. But also as we think about application, how the psalmist relates to the word of God, I want to challenge you and say it starts here. It starts inwardly, and it works outwardly. Obedience is key. That's what we're ultimately called to, we can obey in a false way we can obey in a fake way we can obey to just get people's attention to just look good but our obedience to the word of God should flow out of our desire for and our trust for trust in the word of God we should be changed inwardly we should be relating inwardly and that should flow outwardly to affect our actions to affect our words so that we are obedient to the Bible in our words and our actions. So really, those two sections, though they're important, are really just to lead us to this last one, as I said, to this third point, which I think are ultimately, or the last two verses we'll look at are the key verses, the main sections of this section of Psalm 119. So we come to the psalmist's influence. Two verses are under this section key verses for the section, verse 74 and verse 79. Look with me at 74. I'll read them both. Psalm 119.74 says, Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice, because I have hoped in your word. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice. The second one, is verse 79. Look with me there. Psalm 119, 79 says, Let those who fear you turn to me, that they may know your testimonies. Let those who fear you turn to me, that they may know your testimonies. So taking this section all together, as all these verses connect and should not be taken separate, he's saying that he can influence other believers through how he relates to the word in his suffering. Through this hardship... He can be an example. He can cause other people to rejoice by how he lives his life after the word of God. So we see two specific ways that we can or that he can influence them in these two verses. The first way we'll look at is in verse 73. Look again with me there. The first half says, those who fear you shall see me and rejoice. The spot, the psalmist is speaking of people seeing him, meaning that they see how he lives, they see how he conducts himself, how he speaks, how he acts. He's talking about someone literally just observing his life, which again lends itself to what I said in the beginning. He needed to be around other believers. He needed to spend time with them or they would never see how he lives his life. But then he speaks of the influence he and his life have, and that is that he causes other people to rejoice. Literally meaning to make them glad, to make them joyful. The psalmist is saying that his life can bring joy to other people. It can make them glad. He's not talking about telling a joke. okay? He's talking about simply how he is living his life, faithful and committed to the word of God through suffering, can ultimately bring joy to a fellow brother or sister in Christ. A fellow believer might be having a rough day. They see you at church. They see you serving. They see you loving others. It brings a smile to their face. A fellow believer might see how we respond in a difficult situation, obeying God's word. It brings them joy. A fellow believer might see how we respond in a disagreement, And we follow the Bible and how it commands, and it it makes them glad. You think about what makes you glad or what causes you to rejoice. Have you ever considered or, or gotten joy from seeing a brother or sister in Christ faithfully living out the word of God? Has that ever brought you joy? If it hasn't, it should. It should be, causing, should be a cause for rejoicing that they are intentionally living out their faith and God is doing a work in their life. Think of the, the New Testament. Paul writes a letter, a very short letter, to a man named Philemon. Asks him to do some pretty hard things in that le- letter. But twice in that letter, he speaks of Philemon refreshing his and other believers' hearts. He uses a word, Refreshing. He speaks of the joy, the reviving that they got from Philemon's character and conduct through his faithful service to the Lord. When Paul speaks of Philemon, refreshing his heart. That's the idea we have here with the psalmist, as he says that people see him, they see how he lives, they see how he speaks, they see how he conducts himself in this tough, difficult time, and they rejoice. So application, first, this should be a motivator to us. It shouldn't be our only reason or done in a people-pleasing way, but our lives and how we relate to the word of God and bring joy to other believers. We should be encouraged from this text to let the word of God dwell in us and change us so that others are glad and rejoice. We should want to bring joy. We should want to bring gladness to other believers through how we live our lives we should think about others and how we affect them with our conduct. Do we cause them to get upset, to be discouraged by how we live and speak, or do we bring them joy because of how we are following the word of God? Second, as we think about application, I'll ask, is this something you value in other Christians? that you notice they are living according to the word of God, you can tell God is teaching them and growing them through his word, and it brings you joy. We should come to value this and find joy in other believers being in the word and growing from it. I would even say we should be looking for this, not in a judgmental way, not that you're watching, how are they living, how are they speaking, but you're just observing other believers as you talk with them, as you see how they respond. As you notice it, rejoice, give thanks to God, be glad that they are following the word of God with their lives. But there's another way. So first influence is that make other people rejoice, be glad. The second way that we see the psalmist speaks of him influencing other believers is that is through his example or through his example others are led to obey. Look with me at verse 79. Psalm 119 verse 79 says, let those who fear you turn to me that they may know your testimonies. So there's different ways we can learn the word of God if you think about it. Probably maybe one of the main ways we talk about is reading the word of God, reading the word of God for yourself. You can learn it, you can grow from it. Maybe a second way we could say is doing what we're doing right now, hearing it preached, hearing it taught, But another way you can learn the word of God as we see from this verse is through watching it lived out in other believers' lives. Other Christians can be examples to us of what it looks like to follow the word of God with their lives. Think of those in your life. So think personally for yourself. Think of those in your life who have been instrumental in providing an example of obeying the word of God and how that challenged you to obey too. Maybe a number one answer for some of you is your parents. Maybe your grandparents You spent the most time with them. You watched how they followed the word of God if they were a Christian. And that was an example to you. But maybe it was just coming here to church and watching older, more mature believers. And they were an example. And you were able to learn how to obey the word of God because of how they lived it. That's the idea here. So the psalmist's prayer is that he would be this for other believers. Look again. Verse 79 says, let those who fear you turn to me that they may know your testimonies. So he wants other believers to be able to watch his life and turn and know and obey God's word. And I'll ask you, is this your prayer? This is a prayer. He says, let those, may those who fear you turn to me. Is this your prayer? That you would be an example in how you live your life no matter how young you are? No matter how long you've been a Christian, is this your prayer? And second, I'll ask you, and this is important too, are you actively seeking to be that example? So if this is your prayer, you need to be doing some work too. Are you actively seeking to be that example, remembering that others are always watching, no matter if we realize it or not? That we observe each other's acts how each other acts and speak, that we are constantly an example to one another. And whether that's good or whether that's bad is ultimately for us to determine. So as we think about the context, remember here specifically, the psalmist is dealing with suffering, as we saw in the first point. He's dealing with trials and hardships and persecution, so he is desiring to be an example to others in his suffering. And as I thought about that, thought about this context that's an interesting desire. Usually, if you think about it, usually in our suffering, our focus is ourselves. What we're going through. How our situation is affecting us and impacting us in our life. But Think about who the focus is on in the psalmist's life. Look at these two verses. It's on others. He's going through a difficult time. Someone's lying about him, and he's not necessarily thinking about his situation only. He's thinking about others and his impact on them, how his life and his suffering is affecting and impacting others. That's a very different way of thinking than I think, at least for myself, how I usually think. So I'll ask us, will you think about other Christians and your example for them while you suffer? How you talk about your suffering, how you respond to those who persecute you. Will you be a godly example for others? Will you be a a godly example for your children? Will you be an example for the teens of this church? Will you be an example to the peers or your peers or even those who are older than you? Will you be an example of obeying the word of God so that others can learn it and obey it as well? I want to close with just an illustration off of this point. You'll have to turn there. You can if you'd like, but in the letter the first letter of the Thessalonians that Paul writes to this church, I think we get a very similar passage that we have to what we have here in this section of Psalm 119. It's cool how we see these passages connect. First Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 6 to 8, we we get an illustration or an example of exactly what the psalmist is talking about and going through here in the lives of the Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter 1, starting at verse 6, says. All these components, all these themes that we talked about in our section, suffering, the word of God, how they dealt with it, how they related with it, them being an example are all in this passage as well. And that's why I bring it to us as we close. Here we see Paul's talking about how the Thessalonians followed his, but also Jesus Christ's example. How just as Paul and Christ suffered, the Thessalonians suffered. They were afflicted for their faith as well. And though they went through that, they believed God's word. But then Paul says that the Thessalonians actually became examples in themselves. As it says in verse 7, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So God used their example. He used their influence so that others might believe and obey God. We see how God can use our example to influence others for his sake. Even we can start to think grand start to get excited about what God can do. We see in verse 8, Paul says, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but he says your faith in God, your example, how you lived your life, how you accepted the word of God has gone forth everywhere. Their example started to spread. People started to talk about it. People started to believe because they believed. We see how God can use our example, our influence in the lives of Christians, but also non-Christians. So we should be challenged from this section of Psalm 119 and the rest of the scriptures to think about our influence. And I'll finish with this one question. This one question I'd like you to just walk out the doors thinking about as you drive home from church today. And the question is, how are you influencing others? How are you influencing others? Let us close in a word of prayer. God, I just thank you for this passage. I thank you for the challenge that we have to think about how we impact, how we can affect, how we can be an example to one another. Lord, we ultimately are an example in in some way or another. If it's good or it's bad, people are influenced by us and what we say and what we do, even what we don't say and what we don't do. And Lord, I just pray that you would help us as a church, even as we think about the Thessalonians, to be a church that is an example of believing your word and living it out. Lord, use our example to go forth to people in our community, people that live even all over the world, that we would be an example so that they too might believe and obey your word. Lord, I just pray that you'd help us to really think intentionally about how we act even as we show up here on a Sunday, even as we play sports, even as we interact with one another just in a conversation, how we're influencing one another. And Lord, ultimately, I pray that others would rejoice because of our example. But also, Lord, we pray that by watching us, people would learn to obey your word. God, help us to do this as this very easily slips our minds and we think about ourselves or we think about what we want to do. But Lord, help us to live out your word and be an example to other Christians. And in your name I pray. Amen.